I'll be reading today's passage. It's Matthew 5, 38 through 48, if you'd like to follow along. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to shine, sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are, other, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right. Thanks, Peter. You have one of the hardest jobs transitioning from the passing of the peace to the reading of scripture. That's right up there with uh, when we gather as a missional community and someone has to do the very awkward thing of gathering the, the stray cats and saying, hey, we're gonna sit down together and open, right? It's really difficult. So thank you, Peter, for, for that. And uh, what a great Sunday. I like our towel Sundays. It's a, it's a fun, fun celebration when we receive new family partners. My name is Dawson Jones. I'm one of the servant leaders here. It's my joy to be a member of this church. And we are in Matthew 5, as Peter already said. Uh, a guy named Dallas Willard, he's a Christian philosopher, I guess he was, um, known for his work on spiritual formation. He wrote a whole book called The Divine Conspiracy on these few chapters uh, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And he claims, this is his, his uh, statement, he says, the main test for Christ-like character is whether one spontaneously responds to their enemies with love. That's his like ultimate litmus test. Let me say it again. The main test for Christ-like character is whether one spontaneously, like instinctively, responds to their enemies with love. I'm not 100% sure if he's right, but reading the Sermon on the Mount, reading this last chapter, I think he's probably pretty close. This is where, this is where it's headed. And how are we all feeling? How are we doing with that test? Like, how's that going? Like, when we're squeezed... Do you, like we're, we're squeezed by people we don't like? Do you just ooze love back to these uncomfortable people? Um, enemy is a big word, but whether you are encountering like a lowercase enemy, that person that like you're super close to the checkout line and you're obviously closer than they are, but they kind of do a little shuffle real quick and they cut you off, right? It's a little lowercase enemy. Do you ooze compassion and love to that enemy? Or maybe it's a, a, I'll call an uppercase E enemy, somebody who consistently, perhaps maliciously in your life has been creating heartache, pain, grief. How are you doing? What's our instinctive response? What happens naturally? Jesus has already said a lot of radical things in this sermon, but I don't think it's a stretch to disagree with Dallas Willard that this might be this call to non-retaliation and this call to enemy love at the end of this chapter five might be his most radical idea yet. So how are we doing with this? Especially in a culture that puts forth self-preservation and straight up retaliation as a, as a good thing we're being formed, we've, we've been formed by the fall, by the enemy, by this culture that we're in, and 
this culture that we're in is screaming at us, hey, no, you are an individual, you matter, you have rights. Some of that is true, but it's been twisted a little bit to the point where we could just, we want to yell at people, a plague on you if you have validated, if you have uh, defied some, if you have taken away some of my rights. So instead of love for enemies, we are in a culture where it's not that crazy to, to be happy when you see your enemies fall, right? There's tons of movies and shows and books that are just sorted on that, on that theme. We even have a word for this, this glee when our enemies fall. Actually, we don't have a word, but we borrowed one from the Germans a, a hundred years ago. It's called schadenfreude. You heard of that word? Schadenfreude. It's a delight in the trouble of others, usually those we don't like. It's that, that feeling you get when someone, you're just minding your own business driving, and then someone just cuts you off and like you swerve to miss them. And 10 minutes later, you see them and the police has pulled them over. And you're like, ah, oh, that feeling right there, that's schadenfreude. But it's not just a German thing. I found um, Tiffany Wattsmith. She has a TED Talk on um, emotional health. She has a book called Schadenfreude. And she says that that feeling, that instinct of delight in the suffering of others, specifically those we don't like, our enemies, is cross-cultural. And I made a list for you. And there will be a quiz at the end, all these words. No, joie marine in French, skadefried in Danish. I'm just making up the pronunciations as I go. Ledvermak in Dutch, simchalaed in Hebrew, zloradstvo in Russian, malet volentia in Latin, epikaira kakaya in ancient Greek. And then my favorite, bambanam, it's just kind of fun to say, especially if you put a little twang on it. Bambanam, that's uh, the Melanesians, they're ind indigenous people in the regions of Papua New Guinea. Um, this, this writer, she had an article for The Guardian, well, actually numer numerous articles. She interviewed these people and they're indigenous people. They've lived the same way for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they like, when, they, when she said, so what is, what is Bambanam? They told her a story of how this one Australian government minister who everyone like doesn't like came and did his thing and, and no one liked him and he stirred up trouble again and they got into a huge argument. They were telling him that they don't want him there. He says, well, I'll be back. And he stormed off in his car and he crashed into a tree. And they were like, he was okay, he didn't die. But they were like, that's Bambanam and it feels good. Bambanam, Bambanam, I think I like the word because it even sounds like, sounds like vengeance. Bambanam, bambanam. So our world, to some degree, runs on bambanam. Uh, our politics do, sells a lot of movies. But, okay, what happens when you encounter a story that instead of bambanam, instead of self-protection, Instead of revenge, you find a story where people respond to violence or to just an assault with poised grace, with this quiet gentleness. Something deep inside us when we encounter this countercultural story goes like, ah, it really resonates. One of the most arresting exchanges in classical literature it's super cliche, but it's kind of the best story, is the story in Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Many of you probably know it, but it's worth telling every time. The hardened convict Jean Valjean is released from prison and he finds hospitality with this priest. You know the story? The priest welcomes him in, gives him a meal, he gives him a place to stay, a bed. And what does Jean Valjean do? He gets up in the middle of the night Sneaks around, finds the silver spoons and forks, I believe. What? Well, wait, wait for that. It's coming up. It's coming up. And 
he, he leaves. He, he steals it. He takes it away. He gets, he gets caught by, uh, by the police, the Jardins, and he is brought back to this priest. And you can just imagine Jean Valjean. He, he sees the priest coming. He's lived a life of shame. He spent decades in prison. He's about to get it again. And what does this priest do? I want to quote, because it's, it's brilliant. Listen, this is right from, well, translated from French. The priest says, ah, here you are, the priest exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. You've forgotten something. I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver, just like the rest, and for which you can certainly get at least 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? And Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable priest with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. What's happened to Jean Valjean? He surprised this priest by, by, by taking his stuff and he himself gets surprised by, by grace. He gets ambushed by generosity. The priest strikes back with this lavish love and it messes him up. And when you read this sermon that Peter just read for us, and you hear Jesus talking about his people, the people of his kingdom, I love it. Sometimes it sounds like a challenge, but often it's just like him saying, oh, you should see my people. You should see they have different instincts. They turn the other cheek. They waylay their attackers with grace. They pray for their enemies. So we're going to walk through the last two parts of this chapter five before we gather next week for our family gathering. And we're going to do it in two parts because it has two parts. And I kind of made longer titles, so you're probably getting a little nervous when there's long, longer titles, but here they are anyway. The first one is a surprising response rooted in something deeper than our rights and a surprising love that's reaching beyond our friends and that points to a perfect father. Let's pray and let's spend some time with Jesus. Jesus, thank you <clears throat> that you loved your enemies. Not to give it away, but to give it away. Thank you that you've brought us near. I pray that you do that again today. That is in part why we gather. For you to draw us close again each time. Amen. We spent the last few months doing a little practice. I'm gonna remind you, in case you've forgotten or if you're new here, at the end of my time here, we do a little dialogue. You're not expected to say anything, but we believe that voices in the body need to be heard. And so you can go ahead and, and ask the spirit to be speaking to you in these two ways. Um, two questions we always ask at the end, how is Jesus challenging you? How is the spirit comforting you? So we're going to go there again today, but let's start with that first bullet point, a surprising response rooted deeper than our rights. So we're looking at retaliation and enemy love. Those are kind of two topics, but we're blending them together because they're kind of one topic at the same time. And again, we've seen this formula appear in every single topic. It's a simple formula where Jesus does, does these three things. He says a statement. He says, it has been said. And he says, you're familiar with this one, right? And then he does this explanation, not a new one, but saying, this is what it was about all along. And then just because he's a super helpful teacher, he gives these little like baby steps. Like, and this is what it looks like to live it out, okay? So I'm gonna uh, read verse 38 again. You've heard that it was said, here's the original statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we'll stop there. Jesus is just quoting something that is super familiar 
to everyone there. It's a familiar phrase to us, but to them it was part of their, their law. It was very familiar. It's in passages like Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21, which I did not know by memory. That's why I'm looking down here. It's there. This original command was a law. It was given to the Israelite people. It was a law for a nation state. It was... It was how things were supposed to work. It was saying if there is a crime, there should be a punishment. That's, just, that's still how it works today, right? Uh, that principle in Latin is called lex talionis, and that's pretty much standard in most, if not all, all developed countries today. It's um, simply put, the punishment should meet the crime. And it was there for good reasons. I have those three reasons up there at least these three reasons, right? Why is, that, why is it a, a, a helpful law? Well, first of all, it restricts severe punishment, right? This holds powerful people in check. They're not abusing the little people who did a little thing and they don't get like smushed. Then uh, it's also putting a check on self-appointed retribu retribution, vengeance, or what some, uh, some call Sicilian justice like from the Godfather, right? Like this, I will come, I'm calling cousin Corleone. He's coming after you, right? It's very, actually, I mean, I'm joking about the Godfather, but it's very much a real practice in those ancient times in that Israelites, this nation state of Israel was incredibly progressive that they had a legislation that says no one's allowed to call cousin Corleone. God cares about his people. We're going to have it, it's going to be right. So this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was actually a good thing. It was saying, if someone knocks out your tooth, you don't go beat them up. You don't go more, right? That's, that's metaphorical. You don't go, you don't go beyond, if someone slights you, you don't come back in all of your fury. It's just, it's just legislative. The, th uh, the third one's kind of obvious, just so things don't get crazy. Like, it's just simple, simple justice. So, it was a legal system. So when he said that, you've heard it said, it's not that he's saying that's wrong. He's saying that's how, that's how it is today, right? That's how it works today. If you go and steal someone's silver spoons and forks, you can't just say, hey, Jesus said, like, turn the other cheek. Like, that's not how it works. You get in trouble. But what had happened is by the time Jesus comes on the scene, uh, People have taken what was simply supposed to be an organization of a country and they had given themselves permission to, to respond, to be, doing, to be responding to hard things with hard things. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, we need to go back to the intent, just like he's been doing with each, each law. And he says, just because we set up in place this protection for people, that doesn't mean that whenever you're slighted, you don't have an opportunity to represent the character of God who has forgiven you more than you can imagine. You're still called to be a forgiving people. This is just to protect the innocent from like super crazy people who, have no, who don't care about God. He's saying you're way off the map. Uh, there's a guy named Jonathan Pennington who says in two paragraphs what I tried to say in like seven. His paragraphs are still long and condensed but I'm just going to give you his so that we can move on. This is what he says. Jesus is not contradicting the good of this good command, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth still is there. It only appears that way if we assume that the original command was that we must exact retribution on our enemies, that like we have to do vengeance. That was not the original intent of the original command. It is good for society as a prevention of violence. It fights against people taking justice into their own hands. So Jesus doesn't contradict this, but he goes on to offer the true and heart-level virtue that corresponds precisely with this command. As lust is to adultery and anger is to murder, Jesus is speaking to our hearts. Do not be a vengeful, vigilante, self-justified distributor of justice, there is a greater righteousness and something more beautiful, letting God be the one who sets things to right. And that is a consistent theme 
in the Old Testament. And all those little things you can't read at the bottom are just a few of the places where God's, uh, this consistent theme of letting God be the one who avenges, it's, it's all throughout. So Jesus wasn't saying anything new. So this original law was to maintain order in society. Back to Jesus here. Jesus says, but I say to you, let's read what he says again. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There are four examples there. If you didn't catch them, here they are. With a slap, a coat, a hike, an extra mile, and a loan, okay? Now, just we're going to go into kind of story mode. Just imagine this for a second. Imagine that you're a Jew living under Roman rule in that time. If you want to even close your eyes and kind of just get into this, you can. Imagine for a second, your first century Hebrew, you live in a village, let's say, in Galilee. There are soldiers everywhere. They've been occupying you and your people for decades, for 70 years. Taxes are at 80 to 90%. That is not an exaggeration. There is a recession. You sometimes don't know if you are going to have bread on the table the rest of the week. The Romans are taking real estate and properties from your people, from your grandparents, from your aunts and uncles. You have some of your dear friends who are so desperate that they're joining resistant, resistance groups. They're going and assassinating Romans, then getting caught and getting killed. And then your, your local rabbi keeps telling you these stories from your ancient history that are supposed to be encouraging about your people being freed from captivity in Egypt or Babylon, but where is he now? And then, let's keep, stay in the zone. This is all made up, okay? But no, all of that was true, and what I'm about to say <laughs> is all made up. Imagine that you're coming home from, a, from a, a long, very unsuccessful fishing trip, as one often does after a fishing trip unless you're Dan Houston over there. You come home, you have a few fish, but you have to go through the little tax collector booth because that's just what one does every time they come home with their fish. And you have to pay your taxes on your five measly fish because that's how things work. And guess who's there? Zacchaeus, the little, the little he's pre-reformed, not nice tax collector, you come up to him and you're like, why did I have to get this guy? Why couldn't it have been that other dude from yesterday with the mustache? He, uh, you come to Zacchaeus and you kind of say, you say, okay, I got five fish and I honestly don't have enough to pay, but I got six other friends living at my house right now. I have to take these fish home. And Zacchaeus gets up on a table, his Roman guards around him and he just goes, Bam! just smacks you across the face. That's the banabam that I was talking about. That was a normal practice. He could totally do that. And then he can still decide if he can take your fish or not. Or let's give another one. Let's say you're married and you have a picnic on the Sabbath with your family. Kids are out of school. You got a ton on your plate, but you're honoring God by resting. So you go to the picnic by the lake, you're enjoying your kids. I finally got like six hours. And all of a sudden, a Roman soldier comes up to you. And you're like, you better not do this. And he says, you, Israelite, pick up my bag. Give me a mile. Because that's what they were allowed to do. They were in that, in that state of occupation, the Romans, the Roman citizens were allowed to go to the Israelites or other uh, nationalities, ethnicities that they were occupying and say, you're going to take my stuff for a mile. That, that is the context in which Jesus is saying, hey, turn the other cheek. You know what? Go, go an extra mile. 
what is your instinct on that? What gets squeezed out of you? Now, some of you already might have a couple questions about where is this all going to work out? Like, how is this, how is this all going to shake out for you personally? So, just so I don't lose you, um, we've already noticed that Jesus is doing these like big mic drops where he's just saying a super big statement. He usually gives like few sentences. And there is incredible nuance that is required, incredible wisdom that is required. A lot of people take these things very literally. I'm not saying we don't take them literally, but they take it very literally that if someone keeps asking you for clothes, you just keep giving it and like you're going to end up naked. Or like, or, or if someone keeps sla- like slapping, you just keep going. It's like, that, that can't be what Jesus is saying. Jesus, in all of Matthew 5, he uses super radical language. You remember with the lust? Cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. He's using radical language. Why? So that we take note that he's talking about something super radical. But each of these things, including today, it requires specific, some people call it like localized wisdom. Like be, be really wise in your specific situation about what Jesus is saying. This doesn't mean, because it would be really easy to, list, to like listen to what Peter just read and said, so does this mean I literally need to like go through physical abuse with people? No, read the rest of your Bible. Absolutely not. Does this mean that I enable like people taking advantage of others? Absolutely not. Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. It is good, even in society, that we have judges, police officers, that we have leaders in a church that, that, that stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. That's absolutely important. If somebody keeps asking you for your car, because they don't have a car, or they keep at, like doing a Venmo request, that doesn't necessarily mean that you just go for it. Sometimes helping can really hurt people. We gotta be very careful about how we do this. So if you were kind of going there a little bit in your mind, like, where is this gonna go? Is he gonna tell me? I'm just like, that's not where we're going. So what does it mean? If it doesn't mean necessarily that, what does it mean? Let's just throw up the, those, those four words again, slap, coat, mile, loan. And let's give them these definitions. A slap, what's that? An injury to our honor. Taking someone's coat, unfair treatment, that soldier exploiting someone's position or just general mundane taking advantage of others. A guy named Frederick Bruner, who I'm slightly paraphrasing, says this. Look, look at that up there. In a world that regularly, go back, sorry, that was very misleading. Stay on the yellow one. Uh, in a world that regularly gives injuries to honor. That's just regular practice, right? In a world that regularly gives unfair treatment, regularly exploits the weaker, all over, takes advantages of of, of others. Now you can go to the next slide. In that world, disciples of Jesus will render justice in a surprising way by a frequent suspension of justice and by a rendering of generosity. In other words, simply put, brother and sister, it is in our new nature. It, It is in our new character because of our new hearts that Jesus gave us, it actually is in our nature now to be people who give up our rights. That when we are surprised by evil against us, we can have a surprising response that's rooted in something that's deeper than our rights. And what's it rooted in? In the character of our Redeemer. What's the character of our Redeemer? 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, he, Jesus, didn't seek vengeance, but entrusted himself to the Father. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's just Jesus' 
That's just bio. Now, is that easy? Absolutely not. A few things from this passage that can help us. The first thing I want us to notice, Jesus calls evil, evil in this passage. Did you notice that? He sees evil. And that really matters. When he says, do not repay the evil one, don't just, like, we just think, oh, I'm not supposed to retaliate. Don't miss that he's saying, hey, I see that he's evil. I see that he did an evil thing against you. This is huge. And maybe it's just huge for me. It really struck me the last few weeks. When, when, a, when a child is hurt, they need like, when they like have a little scrape on their knee and they come to you, what do they need? They need you to say, I see you're hurt. They need you to say, oh, I, that's legitimate. That's a legitimate owie. And they need attunement and they need comfort. And Jesus is not saying, come on guys, get over it. Be like me. He's saying, no, when somebody harms you, it is evil. I see you. It is wrong. And don't repay him with evil. It's beautiful. He sees the evil. So easy for me. This, I'll say a little bit more. This is where it got me. I found myself often over the last few years as I've experienced different relationships kind of break down where I wanted to, I, I want to, I found myself keep screaming at God, sometimes literally, usually just quiet, that quiet, tense scream. Like, do you see what they did to me? And I often don't wait for a response. I think that's the end of the conversation. But do you see what they did to me? Jesus is saying right here, no, I, I totally do. And, and, and we can listen to what he's going to say about it. He might say, and it's really rough, I'm sorry. He sees it. Second thing, though we are not supposed to get back at the one who did evil, we are to get back at the evil one. There's a little play on words that I don't have time or probably not the pay grade to get into. But there's a little play on words. When it says, do not repay the evil one, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the person that did something to you? Or is he talking about the evil one? The evil one is a phrase, and it means the enemy. It means the devil. But actually, from what I can tell, Matthew intentionally crafts the phrase so that it means both. It means when someone wrongs you, do not repay that person with evil. Do not give in to now the enemy, the evil one, by retaliating to this one who has done evil to you. But in that, what's the, what's the paradox? What's the irony? We actually get even with the evil one when we don't do evil. Isn't that crazy? It's like spiritual warfare against the evil one as we turn the other cheek on a brother, for a brother. It's powerful. Third, we are not a doormat. Repeat after me. We're going to say this. We are not a doormat. We are not a doormat. It's like that you is strong, right? You are not a doormat. Anyone? The help? Isn't that from the help? I love that movie. You guys don't watch good movies. Sorry, I don't know why I just shamed everyone. We are not a doormat. Where was I? The doormat misunderstanding, John Stott says, hey, don't think that this is talking about us all being doormats. It's not just saying let people walk over you. We usually have a dichotomy when people confront us. My wife and I fall into the general categories. We've both grown a lot. But generally, I, I am the fighter and she is the fleer, right? Uh, and that's what we do. We fight or f we, we fight or we flight. We flee. This, G Jesus is saying no. There's a third way. Don't miss it. There's a French philosopher, I don't believe she is a Jesus follower, but I love her. I love her phrase. She wrote a whole book on it. She says, don't just do something. Stand there. 
I love it. It's backwards. It's like, don't just do that instinctive, aggressive move. Don't, don't just flee. Stand there calmly. Stand your ground. Be present. Be a non-anxious presence. Be a, a creative anger. It's really creative when you think about it to turn the other cheek. I mean, it could get you in more trouble, but it's creative. It's creative to say, I'll go the extra mile. Be creative. The priest, how creative is that? He didn't have to do the candlesticks, right? He really didn't. Like, think, I, I, think it's, I know it's not the Bible, but it is pretty dear close, okay? He, the, the priest could have just said, listen, the priest could have just said, hey, guys, it's all good. I gave him the forks, gave him the spoons. But he took the time to get creative. And because he knew that this creative act would impact this young man who needed a creative act. And so... We are not a doormat, but we are a signpost. We are a creative people that are meant to be salt and light, right? Telling people what God is like. And we get to have surprising responses to evil. And so to kind of summarize, creatively taking an insult is a few things. It's trusting that Jesus sees us. Creatively taking an insult is a slap to the face of the evil one. And it's also extraordinary missionary activity for someone like Jean Valjean. Second, and I will be briefer on this one, which is our last one. Love for enemies, a surprising love. We are meant to have a surprising love that reaches beyond our friends. Love that goes beyond your people, your circle. And that what? Points to the character of God. I'm gonna read that second part. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the pagans do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You could summarize that with the famous theological gurus with that amazing 70s hair, the Bee Gees. How, how deep is your love, right? For real though, how far reaching is my love? Does it go beyond my friends? Eugene Peterson, I love his paraphrases. He goes, if all you do, just paraphrasing this passage we, we, let, we just read, if all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. When Jesus says, it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that could catch us off guard because it was never said, hate your enemy. Nowhere in th this Old part of the Old Testament, old part, the Old Testament, will you find and hate your enemy? There are some, there are some strong words on enemies, but it's never like a command. It's not, it's not love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But again, the scribes had gotten to this, uh, this place where they assumed kind of conveniently that if we're to love our neighbors, we are to hate our enemies. And Jesus says, no, you are to love your enemies to which those of us who have enemies might say, a little extra help, how? And Jesus says, pray for them. It's like, okay, that's really not that helpful. But wait, what a powerful picture he gives us. He chooses to give us this powerful picture. 
And I have the weather forecast for Tacoma for this next week. And look at it. It is getting sunny. This is a big deal. If by chance there are two people listening, because I got a text from LA last week, this is not normal. We have sunny skies coming up, 55 degrees tomorrow, and then it's going to be 77 degrees on Friday. Praise God. And only for us, just our church here, right? No, think about it for a second. If you have somebody who you avoid in the supermarket, who you don't know if you should hug them when you bump into them at a concert, guess what? When they pull out their phone, they're going to see the same sunshine. That messed with me this week. I was like, no, that's not fair. These people are annoying. I don't like them. Jesus gives us a powerful metaphor. He he says that the Father makes the sun rise on the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. He takes a page out of the book of nature. Sinclair Ferguson says, Your father shows love to his enemies every day in giving them sun and rain to the righteous and ungodly alike. He has every right to retaliate against sinners for the dishonor they have done to his creation. Instead, he shows mercy and patience through sunshine and rain. Now, some of us, we're going to kind of land the plane on maybe the most, like, specific geography of our hearts, at least for me. Some of us have found some real enemies. I remember I have this, this I, I keep my journals. Like seven or eight years ago, I wrote this, this line in my journal that says, I am at peace with all men. And I think I really thought I was. I think I was. That is not true anymore. It is very difficult. In fact, Romans, when it commands us to be at peace at all men, has a caveat. It says, if it is in your power, I just want to tell you guys, I have a lot of dear friends. I have a lot of good people that will come to me and tell me how things are. But I also have a few people that have really hurt me and that I would say came to mind when I thought about this. Now, this is definitely talking about enemies outside the church, making life difficult for followers of Jesus, but it is also talking about anyone who gives you that feeling in your stomach. You are called to pray for them. I'm called to pray for them. And that might mean that some of us have had to work on praying for our mother or our father or someone who used to be a really close friend, a sibling. It could be a former mentor. It could be a former pastor. It could be a boss that has made your job really, really difficult, but it's very difficult for you to switch careers. Now, I hope you've been around enough to hear that if traumatic stuff like that happens, you might need some some long lingering attunement with some fellow brothers and sisters who could listen to your story or some professionals who can help you work through some trauma. It's really needed. I think all of our missional community leaders have gone through counseling in the last few years. That might be an exaggeration, but I think it's pretty close. And we're huge in this, in our church community. We want to have a culture where people are encouraged. Hey, if somebody is consistently unhealthy in your life, you need to like pursue what boundaries need to look like with that person. But boundaries with others are not a substitute for prayer that is molded after the sunshine and rain that Jesus gives that same person. And that should mess us up a little bit. That should bring us to recognize that maybe our heart isn't isn't in line with the Father as much as we want. I want to wrap up soon 
but I'm going to have to skip over something that I think is really helpful. So I'm going to mention what it is. I'm not going to go into the depth that I thought I was going to go to do. Over the last uh, couple years with the elders and some of our leaders and then our cornerstone team that leads our youth, we've gone through a, um, a few books, but I'll just recommend one, one of the most accessible by a guy named Jim Wilder called The Other Half of the Church that really helps in this arena of emotional health, of understanding what it means to be loving while at the same time have boundaries. And you know what, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna throw up three types. I'm not gonna explain a lot. I'm just gonna kind of tease your appetite and be like, oh, I think that could be helpful for me. Um, there, in the last 20, 30 years, there's been huge advances in psychology. That's a good thing. All truth is God's truth. And there have been some theologians who've gotten together with neuroscientists and some neuroscientists who studied theology and become, uh, they're called neurotheologians now. And some of these guys have said, hey, Jesus said it all along and now we understand it a little bit more. Okay, so I'm just gonna throw something up here. I hope it's not unhelpful. I hope you're like, oh, I need to hear more about that. So something happens in our brains. We, we, uh, we can go into one of at least, I'm gonna throw up three modes. We were meant to be in relationship primarily with God and with others when stuff happens, traumatic stuff happens. It's kind of like when you have appliances in your kitchen and you have too many on at once and it shuts down, that happens to your body. It happens to your brain. And suddenly you are, do not have capacity for normal friendships that used to be easy. Suddenly you're like, uh-uh. And some scientists, some neuroscientists have called it enemy mode. Okay? If you like that, you can take it. If you don't, you can find another name. Enemy mode is simply this. Simple enemy mode. Give me the, the list, uh, Sarah. This is what happens in you once that thing shuts down. I just want to make a problem, person, or feeling go away. I don't want to listen to others. My mind is locked on to something upsetting. I just want to get away or fight or I freeze. And then I more aggressively judge and fix. That's enemy mode. This is gonna be a little scary. It actually gets worse, okay? It gets worse, and this might be you. Watch out. This has been me. It could be something that has happened to you from somebody. When things go really, really, really dark, and people actually go from just like, I can't handle this, to like, I wanna hurt you, this happens. I would like others to lose. I'm looking for weaknesses in others. I'm covering my moves or plotting my escape. I find it easy to justify that I am right. Tracking their feelings, movements, and plans feels strategic, and I know how to use people. That's really rough stuff, okay? But maybe some of us have felt that before. But finally, there is hope, even from these enemy modes, we can go back into what Jesus is calling us into, and that's compassionate relational mode, where I feel curious. I wanna know about what the other person is experiencing. Right now, I desire to share what the other person is feeling at this moment. I feel protective of them. Other person feels like my people. Relationship is more important than the problem and I'm aware of God's presence, okay? Now, I'm totally just teasing this. Some of you are nodding because you have enough like handles. And if that wasn't enough, you can talk to a missional community leader or you can open that book with somebody. But my point is, the reason I decided to tease it is that there, there is no promise that if you do what Jesus says and pray for your enemies, your enemies will change. That's not what's happening here. Even the whole like missionary aspect, it's not like if you surprise them, they will now repent and serve Jesus. No, we have to land on the why. Why are we doing this? By the way, if you ever get stuck in enemy mode, this is the last thing I'll say about all that, here's the best thing you can do, according to Jim Wilder and other neuroscientists. Give someone permission to tell you, to look you in the eyes and say, I feel like you're in enemy mode. That's all I'm gonna say. I've done that a few times. Some people have been able to say that to me. It's super, super helpful. Now, back to why? Why are we supposed to do this? Why? Jesus gives us the answer, and the answer is because the apple does not fall far from the tree. That's not exactly what he says. He says in verse 45, that so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We are children of God. 
In Romans 5.10, it says that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. In Ephesians 5.1.2, it says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. In some ways, as I was thinking about this this week, I was like, you know what? It is like crazy that Jesus, like Jesus, I'm honored that you would even think that I have this in me. Right? It's powerful that Jesus would say, you can love your enemies. Like it's like honoring. You know when someone gives you a compliment that's overwhelming and then you have to circle back and like, man, I can't believe they actually said that about me. But why is it possible? Because we have been arrested like Jean Valjean in a surprise of love. When God sent his beloved son into an enemy world. And this text closes with another crazy statement. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that could throw us off. Because that perfect word probably means something different to us. That perfect word. And I... I, I want us to land here because this is the way he's wrapping up this whole section. He's saying that the word is teleos and it means much something different and more nuanced and much more than perfect. He's saying, I would have you be as the father is. He is whole. His heart is not divided. He is complete or even free. And I've, I want to land on that image Some of us, we started with, oh, love my enemies. But it is poison to not. It is prison to not. Jean Valjean actually goes through a struggle after that happens. He's like, this grace is too much. And he's going to remain trapped for a while. Jesus wants us to be free. I'm we'll close this fifth chapter with a quote from uh, Huck Finn that one commentator pointed out. He said, Christian maturity, especially, especially this nonviolence stuff, if you get there, if you get into Jesus' invitation, it's like Huck's Finn ra- Huck Finn's raft. This is Huck Finn's quote. I was powerful glad to get away from the feuds, from the fighting. And so was Jim to get away from the swamp, from all that yuckiness. We said there weren't no home like a raft after all. Other places do seem so cramped up and smothery. That place of tense relationships. But a raft don't. You feel mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft. Jesus' yoke of non-retaliation is light. We are to be a people that are rooted in something deeper than our rights, and we have a love that goes beyond our friends because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm gonna pray, and I said a lot, but I'd love to give some space for us to respond. I'm gonna invite Brandon up to bring up um, the whiteboard, and we're gonna do a few minutes of, of response.